Dear Father, we thank you for the marvelous work that you are self-evidently doing in this small body, even after just a short time, Father. There are many important things falling into place. You've provided us people. You've provided us materials and a facility. You've provided us, Father, with uh, those basic needs that ensure that we meet and that we teach and that we minister to one another. And it's just the start, Father. It's a sign that you have better things planned, that you have somewhere you're taking us all. And we thank you, Father, for the excitement, for the novelty, uh, for the, um, just the mystery of what you're doing here. And, Father, we know that you have a plan. We don't have to overthink this. We don't have to do more than you call us to do. We just have to be faithful to you, to what you've asked of us. And if we are, we know that you will use us in mighty ways, as you've done men and women in the past. And, Father, we know that it always begins with your word, feeding your sheep, strengthening them for the work you put in front of them. And then it moves from hearing the word, Father, to doing the word, to obedience, to living out the things you've asked of us. And that requires not just... Study and understanding, it requires those around us to strengthen our weaknesses and to encourage us along that path. It involves opportunities where we can invest our time, Father. We ask for those as well. It involves sacrifice. And we ask, Father, that you would always put our mind and our hearts on you and your needs here above our own. Let us sacrifice as we need to so that we might please you as we must. And, Father, in the word tonight, speak through me. In the mystery of preaching, Father, as you speak through the mouth of a man, I pray, Father, that the truth would come forth, even if it's not what I plan to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are engaged in a verse-by-verse study. We're in the Gospel of Matthew. We've reached chapter 7, which is at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that sermon on righteousness, true righteousness. Now, in chapter 7, Jesus has moved to preparing his disciples. He wants them to be ready to face the unrighteous world. When we go out displaying our righteousness before them, he wants us to be strong and united in that. And in verses 1 through 6, which you remember now from a couple weeks ago, Jesus began by teaching you have to resist that temptation to judge another's righteousness. Judging is the process of deciding for someone else what they must be doing to be approved by God. You know better what they should do for God to approve them. It was a favorite pastime among those in Israel in Jesus' day. The Pharisees made it a profession. But Jesus says that's wrong thinking. His teaching on judging was divided into two parts. We did one two weeks ago, and the second part we did last week. The first part was verses 1 through 5. That's when Jesus said, don't judge other believers in the body. That is, believers don't judge each other, because we all make mistakes, including you, and we're all just as assuredly, 100% righteous by our common faith in Jesus Christ. So we all sit in the same place on either end of that spectrum. So rather than judging each other, he said, just judge yourself. Just take the log out of your own eye. Let the Holy Spirit convict you and guide you into what you should do. And then you'll be a model for everyone else. Rather than a judge, be a model of righteousness. And then last week, and I hope you were here for last week, and if you haven't heard last week's, I really encourage you to go online and listen. Because last week, we looked at the second part of that teaching, verse 6. And Jesus very provocatively added that we should neither be judging unbelievers either. And this, I think, is a common misunderstanding within the the body today. We, We see a lot of people doing this, unfortunately. And Jesus said we don't do it because unbelievers are enslaved to sin. They lack that internal spiritual compass that you and I have by faith that would direct them into godliness. So telling them not to sin is like telling a slave to free themselves from their slavery. It's pointless advice. And judging that 
behavior, trying to tell them how to look better and clean them up and so on, is missing the big picture. Don't become preoccupied with their bad behavior. Jesus says, don't throw your pearls, that is, your pearls of wisdom, before these people. He says, don't fix their sin problem because you're treating the symptom, not the disease. And the disease, in their case, is a heart of unbelief. And that's where our focus needs to be. Now, there is nothing wrong, by the way, with offering advice when asked or giving godly counsel when there's an opportunity or even lending a hand to help people in a bad situation. But just don't think that when you become someone's life coach that you're making them righteous or more pleasing to God. No amount of good advice can make someone righteous unless and until they put their faith in Jesus Christ. So that really is our focus for the unbeliever. Don't judge their unrighteousness. Preach the gospel so that they will obtain righteousness by faith. That leaves us now at verse 7. And if you glance over the passage, and I want you to do this with me for a moment, just read silently, not out loud, please. Read silently over what follows from verse 7 down to about verse 11. You just glance through it there for a second. And as you do, you're going to immediately assume, many people will assume, that Jesus is changing topics here rather abruptly. But as I said last week, and you can stop scanning now. As I said last <laughs> you're so good. I mean, everybody was just like, I'm not paying attention anymore. As I said last week, this opening passage in Matthew 7, from verse 1 all the way to where we are now, this is not some series of isolated statements, like little nuggets of wisdom, like Chinese fortune cookies he's just throwing out. That's how it's often perceived and often taught. That's not what he's doing. So our task tonight is the same as it's been since we started this chapter. That is, to understand what Jesus is saying in these verses in context. The whole thing put together. So let's start in verse 7. I'm going to read down to verse 11. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? All right, this is yet another illustration in a string of illustrations here. This one centers around asking and seeking and knocking, as you can tell. Verse 11, we're told that the one being asked and sought after is our Father in heaven. So we can jump to that conclusion right there. It's, it's a seeking of the Father, an asking of the Father. And therefore, the ones who are doing the asking and the seeking and so on, they are His children by faith, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, those who have been born again, believers. All right? And in fact, Jesus compares our process of seeking things from our Father in heaven to the same way that our children, earthly children, seek things from us, right? So it's, it's a seeking process between children and a father, spiritual children and the Father in heaven. Now also, I want you to notice that in this passage, Jesus addresses believers in the second person, plural, you. Of course, here in Texas, we have a special conjugation for that, y'all. And in the Greek, the verbs asking, seeking, knocking, they're all conjugated in the present tense in Greek, which would indicate continuous action. So this is a never-ceasing dependence or requesting of the Father that's in view here. So he's illustrating us continuously seeking something from the Father. That's the starting point of what we're understanding. Now, at this point, here's where the temptation comes in to jump to a conclusion, one that assumes Jesus has gone to a new topic. 
And it's particularly easy to jump to that conclusion in this case because all the details at first seem to lead us there. We see him talking about asking the Father, and we we see the Father giving us something in return. And so naturally, what do we assume that he's talking about? What topic did he just move to, we assume? Come on, we all know what it is, right? You're afraid to answer because you're about to get in trouble, right? It's going to be the wrong answer. But what do we think? Prayer, right? What else would he be talking about, right? Well, as logical as that assumption is, it's wrong. And you knew I was going to say that, or otherwise I wouldn't have done such a big lead-in, right? In fact... You can only come to the conclusion that he's talking about prayer if you divorce this passage from the immediate context of chapter 7, and for that matter, if you ignore the rest of Scripture on the topic of prayer. Because this runs counter to those other teachings. So just as we did last week, before I tell you what it does mean, I think I need to take a few minutes to explain to you why Jesus cannot be talking about prayer here, not in the general sense. Because I know that's the accepted wisdom, and I just want you to see how that doesn't fit. First, I mentioned it doesn't fit the immediate context of Matthew 7. Look, Matthew 7 is not on the topic of prayer, Uh, self-evidently. I mean, we know verses 1 through 6 were on the subject of judging, that is, becoming preoccupied with fixing other people's behavior problems. We've seen that. That does not naturally lead you into a discussion of prayer. It's a completely different topic. And now I want you to glance down to verse 12, which is where my passage for the night leads you to next. And what do you see in verse 12? Well, we're going to get to that verse soon enough, but even just reading it quickly, you can see that Jesus is engaged in wrapping up, in summing up a point. I mean, even the verse itself begins with, in everything, therefore, right? And the word therefore is intended to point to to the fact that he's making an application from what he's just been teaching. All right, well... If you read the summary in verse 12 coming out of tonight's passage, thinking that tonight's passage is about prayer, it makes no sense at all. It's completely nonsensical. Here's what you're saying. Jesus just said this, quote, Ask the Father and he'll give you good gifts. Therefore, in everything, treat people the way you want to be treated. There's a word for that. That's a non sequitur. A non sequitur is a conclusion that does not follow logically from the previous argument. And Jesus was not prone to teaching in non sequiturs. That would be a non sequitur summary. Do you follow what I'm saying? You can't get there from here. Verse 12 makes no sense if verse 11 through 7 was talking about prayer. Well, or unless you assume he's got ADHD. Thoughts pop into his head and it just comes out of his mouth, right? I have that problem too. But that's that's not Jesus' problem. So the immediate context doesn't take us into that topic. Secondly, assuming that he is teaching a general lesson on prayer here, then he's teaching things on prayer that contradict other scripture. You may remember that only a short time earlier in this very same sermon, Jesus in chapter 6 taught about prayer. He gave us this model of prayer that we now call the Our Father. Remember that? And when we looked at that prayer, we noticed that Jesus gave us some very specific things that we should have in our prayer. Now, before I even look at the differences, just think about now the course of his narrative. Here he was in chapter 6 in the topic of prayer, moving through that topic He moved away from it. Now in verse 7, are we assuming he just, oh, there was something I forgot to tell you about prayer. Hold on a second. Let me just jump back to that topic for a minute. Here again, friends, that's not Jesus' style. It's not what you see going on in the Bible generally. It makes him look like he forgot something and he was forced to back up. More importantly, if you look at what he did say about prayer in chapter 6, I'll read you the first opening verses. You you know them by heart. In, In Matthew 6, 9, he says, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, Your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, so he says when you pray, the focus of your prayer life should be seeking for the Father's will. Not seeking for your own will, necessarily. Seeking for his will to be done. All right, that was chapter 6. Now in chapter 7, he's supposedly following that with a new teaching on prayer, and now he's gone in a different direction. He's supposedly saying, no, you just ask the Father for whatever you want, and he will give you exactly what you want. You know, Jesus didn't follow that model himself when he prayed. On the night before he died, when he was in the garden, this is what he said in Luke twenty-two forty-two: Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. That is exactly the opposite of a conclusion that says, ask and you will have it. Seek and it will be yours. Well, sure, I don't want the cup. Take it from me then. Now, he didn't say that. And I want you to notice how complete Jesus' statements are in Matthew 7 about this notion of asking and seeking and knocking. Look what he says. Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. There are no exceptions to this ask and receive promise that he's talking about here. And moreover, whatever we ask, we will receive what we asked for, he said. And we will receive it not sometimes, but every time, Jesus said. Now that's an incredible promise in the context of prayer, isn't it? It's so incredible, it's not believable. It's not accurate. Does the Father answer every single request you make of him positively, 100% of the time, and gives you all that you wanted? Every I mean, come on. We've never experienced that. Friends, the Bible does not teach that God answers every prayer affirmatively or that whatever you ask of the Father, you will receive from Him. It not only contradicts Scripture, it's self-evidently not the way it works. I mean, ask yourself this. Have you ever asked the Father to heal someone you loved, and yet, in His providence, He determined not to heal them? Or have you asked the Father to receive a job? or a promotion, or a new house, or to find a spouse, or just whatever you dearly desired. And yet, he refused for some reason. Those are moments that serve as proof to us that the Lord's will be done, not our will. All right? Therefore, whatever he is saying here, whatever we are seeing in Matthew 7, whatever this promise is, it cannot be a general statement about how God answers prayers. It just can't be talking about that, because it's not accurate. Nevertheless, there are false teachers who will come to this passage particularly and they'll take it out of context and they'll use it to support whatever brand of false teaching they're trying to sell you. For example, prosperity liars will tell you that if you ask for wealth, you're guaranteed to receive it. Why? Because Jesus said so. Oh, but of course, you don't see Christians living in splendor the world over, do we? I mean, it's self-evidently false. And False healing gospels will come along claiming that if you ask for physical healing of any kind, you will get it every time because Jesus said so in Matthew 7. They conveniently ignore the fact that the death rate for Christians is exactly 100%. (laughs) Household salvation. This one's not as common in the West. It's very common in the East. Every time I go to Asia, this comes up over there. There's a thinking or a a heretical teaching that maintains that if you pray for someone in your family to be saved, they will be saved. So ask Jesus. He'll do it. Why? Because he said, ask and you will have it. And on and on and on and on. I mean, it's easy, right? This is kind of a low-picking fruit for someone who wants to shove false teaching down your throat because they say, oh, look, he said it. All of those teachings run contrary to 
what Jesus says elsewhere in Scripture, what the Bible says generally, and to our own personal experience. And here's why. God doesn't give us what we want, necessarily, because in most cases, that would not be good. And even things that on the face of it might seem good to us, because we can't see the end of all time, and we don't know all the consequences that would follow from that decision, we can't understand all of that like God can, we're not in a position to assess it. All we do is see it from our little moment in time and from our little place in the world. And for us, that looks good. But until we can see it from God's point of view, we can't determine that. It's just that simple. Now, the Bible does teach us to pray without ceasing. It does tell us that God hears our prayers. It's not that he's ambivalent or unconcerned. He is engaged in our prayer life. But our prayer life is supposed to be focused on God's will being done, not on our will trumping his will. So you cannot, on the authority of Scripture, friends, I'm sorry to tell you, you cannot ask God for whatever you want and think that because of what Jesus says here in Matthew 7, you're going to get it. And if you think I'm wrong, just try it, and then report back to me next week on how that worked out. The context of Matthew 7, the overall teaching of the Bible, and our own experience all confirm for us that Jesus cannot be talking about prayer here in the things that he says. So, what is he promising? Well, I want you to notice first that Jesus never names the it in these statements. You know, he, he says, ask and it will be provided. Seek and it will be found. That is, when we pray for a certain something, a specific thing, then the Father will give us that certain specific thing 100% of the time. Jesus says that in doing so, what the Father is doing for us is exactly what we would do for our children. Even though we're evil and we don't do nearly as good a job at parenting as he can. When our children ask for good things, we give them to them, don't we? And that's the key to beginning to understand what he's talking about. The issue here is good things. Good things. You don't give your children everything they ask for, do you? If you do, please don't bring those children to my house. In fact, keep them away from me in general, because if you're the kind of parent who gives everything your children wants to your children, you are raising a future terrorist. Not future terror, they're probably a terrorist right now. I mean, we know these things, right? That's not good for you. Many of the things your children want are wrong for them. And many of the things we want are wrong for us, spiritually, if not otherwise. But when they ask you for good things, you delight to give them what they ask for, right? In Jesus' example, he says a child asks for bread or fish. Those were the basic staples of everyday life in that time. They were the meat and potatoes of Jesus' day. I mean, naturally, if a child wanted more good food, good food for them, well, then the, the earthly father isn't going to respond by giving them an evil gift. He's going to say, of course, son, have another fish. That's good for you. Likewise today, if your children ask you for good things, you give them those good things. And I would venture to say 100% of the time if it's within your means. I mean, for example, if you have a child at the table who says, I want to eat more spinach or green beans. I'm not kidding, right? Would you, what would you say if your child says, mommy, I really want more spinach? Here, have mine, right? Or if your young child came up to you in the evening and said, I really want to do more homework. Okay, let's go at it. Or can I go to bed a little early? I'm a little tired. I think I need extra sleep. Well, what if your teenager came up to you and said, you know what? I want to give up playing video games and social media and Netflix because I need to spend more time reading my Bible. What, what would you, well, first you'd faint and then you would say, of course, Right. Or as they grow up and you have a young lady or a young man living in your house and they ask, you know, Dad, can I work to earn the money for that car rather than you just giving it to me? 
I mean, the the point in all of that is, when the desire is supporting the, the growth and maturity of that individual in the way that you prefer, why wouldn't you accept and promote it? I mean, you would only want the thing they want anyway. That's the good thing that Jesus says we give our kids. And if, friends, if you're not particularly good parents compared to God, and yet you've got that figured out, well, wouldn't God know that too? So kids, if you ask your parents for good things, you will get yes 100% of the time. Because your parents want to say yes to the good things. And we do this even though we're sinful, and our Father does it even better. But in this case, we still need to understand, what is it this good thing that Jesus says we will get 100% of the time? It's not spinach. right? What is it we're now looking to the Father for that is a good thing, that He is inclined to give us every time we ask for it? Well, the answer has to come out of the context. This is where we come back to the context question. What have we been talking about? Where is it going? How does this fit in? Well, what was he saying in the preceding verses? Well, in the preceding verse, uh, 1 through 5, basically, Jesus has been talking about judging. Look at the one right before we started tonight. Verse 6, he was talking about holy things, not giving those to the unbeliever, which were godly insights on how to live righteously. Pearls of wisdom, as I said earlier. Don't offer those to unbelievers. They don't know how to use them. And before even that, in verses 1 through 5, he was talking about basically the same thing, unsolicited advice on how to be righteous that we might offer to our brothers and sisters. So what's the context leading into verse 7? The context is on judging unrighteousness, judging unrighteous behavior. We cannot promote righteousness in others by placing ourselves in God's position, judging them, and then offering their advice, our advice to them. That doesn't equate to them becoming more righteous. What Jesus says instead is, why don't you just switch your focus around, look at yourself, take the log out of your own eye, concern yourself with your own behavior, make your own witness better, become a model for them instead of a judge for them. That's where we've been. Now, think about that prospect for just a second. That's pretty challenging. Now, we went through it last time kind of talking more about the mistake of offering advice. We didn't really get back to the point of the log question. But, you know, it's fun to talk about logs sticking out of eyes and and go through that. But it's a lot harder to actually address sin in our lives, right? That's the hardest thing about walking with Christ, hands down. I think it's harder than persecution. I think, actually, if we get persecuted for our faith, something inside us sort of rises to the occasion. But the hard thing is when you're alone. When you're in your old life, your old haunting ground, your old friends, and the old side of you wants to do what it's always wanted to do, and now you're wrestling, that's a lot harder. That's the hardest thing about walking with Christ. It's hard to rein in your sin nature. It's hard to live out righteousness in a daily fashion. In fact, some days, living righteously feels darn near impossible for most of us. And we all know, I mean, I'm assuming I'm not the only one who feels this way in this room. Everyone knows this, right? Now, compared to that, it's a lot easier to dole out advice to other people, isn't it? I mean, isn't it amazing how we can size up someone else's problem and we have immediately what they need to do? And most of the time, we're probably right. You know, it's not like I'm saying you're wrong. I mean, most of the time, you're probably right. But isn't it interesting? You can judge someone else's lack of righteousness in a moment and you can see right through it and you're like, I know exactly what you need to do. And if you just did these things, you would be righteous. But friends, here's the thing we have already learned. You're not actually fixing them. The advice isn't fixing them. Because if truth be told, you can't even fix yourself with that method. How many of you are amazed by your own sin such that you have no concept where it comes from? 
No one, no one feels that way. You know exactly what's happening, right? If handing out life advice was the solution to solving the problem of sin, then Dr. Phil would be the Pope. And we'd look for the Bible in the self-help section of the, of the library. It, that's not how it works, right? You cannot talk yourself out of a problem, can you? You can't name it, claim it, speak it out, do all these silly things you hear from other people. You know that's true. You know that when you're trying to deal with your own sin problem, you know your sin better than anyone else. You can feel it coming. You know that you're doing something wrong. You know you're about to do something wrong before you do it. I mean, how many people like, oops, I had no idea, I just did that. Right, come on. That's what you say to your spouse, but that's not actually... So we know that it's wrong and we keep doing it. I mean, hopefully we're doing it a little less over time, but the question becomes, how does it become less over time? How? It cannot be because you learned that you shouldn't do it. You already know that. But yet, there is a process of becoming less sinful, of sanctifying our walk. And when your sin and the consequences of sin come crashing down on your head... How helpful are those Job's counselors that come alongside you in those moments and try to help you out of your problem by giving you lots of good advice about how you shouldn't have done what you did? Does that ever, <laughs> did it ever work? And even if their advice is accurate, it's not news, right? Because here's the truth. Your sin problem is not for a lack of information. It just isn't. The problem is we lack the moral strength to put the knowledge into work to control our sinful desires, our sinful flesh, which is why judging other people's bad behavior is of no advantage in the fight that they're engaged in for the sake of Christ. You haven't helped them because they already know what you're telling them. So in verses 7 through 11, what Jesus says, in effect, is stop searching on earth for answers that can only come from heaven. You all need godly counsel, yes. But even more than that, You need spiritual strength to put that counsel into action in combating your sinful flesh. And that strength to fight your sin nature comes from above. So Jesus says, as you're contemplating taking out logs from your own eye or becoming a better witness to unbelievers, turn to your Father in heaven for help. And you know what? He will give it to you every time you ask. Every time. Ask for strength to overcome your sin. You will have it. Seek for righteousness in some particular context. You will find it. Knock on the door and the Lord will open and come to you and he will make his home with you. That's what he's promising. The it here is that missing ingredient in obedience, in in living out your righteousness. It's the difference between being a slave to sin and living a life that is pleasing to God. It's the power to crucify your flesh. It's the power to obey the word of God. It is the mind of Christ. It is the knowledge of what pleases him and the the ability to enact it in your life. It's the alternative to judging. It is the solution to the taking of the log out of your own eye, friends. In a word, it is the power of the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God. The power of the Spirit to bring about those changes in your life. And if you want confirmation of my interpretation, you only have to go to the Gospel of Luke, where this very same thing is said by Jesus in a comparable passage. And I want you to listen to it in Luke. Luke 11, 9, Jesus says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's the it. It's the Holy Spirit, friends. Not money, not healing, not whatever you dream up. It's one thing. It's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the thing you ask for. And as you ask for the Spirit, the grace to overcome your sin is given to you by means of the Spirit. That's a request the Lord answers 100% of the time. Because it's like asking for more spinach. It's like asking for more time to read your Bible. The Lord delights to hear His children saying, can you give me more grace to combat the sin in my life? I would like to be more obedient, Lord. Can you help me do that right now? I'm feeling tempted. I'd like not to give in to my temptations. Get me through this moment, please. Do you think the Lord in heaven is oblivious to that request or disinclined to agree to that? No, it's the opposite. He will give it to you. Now, as you get to this conclusion, I have to make sure that we're careful about one particular thing because there is the potential to make another misinterpretation of the text at this moment. That is, Jesus is not saying, ask for the Holy Spirit and you will receive the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's saying. All believers already have 100% of the Holy Spirit indwelling them from the moment they believe in Jesus Christ. You cannot parse out the Holy Spirit. It is all spirit, meaning you do not have 50% of him. You do not get 10%, tomorrow you have 75 That is not in the Bible and is a complete misunderstanding of spirit. You either have him or you don't. It's all or nothing. Believers have him, unbelievers don't. There's no in-between. That's the testimony of Scripture. The Bible says that you receive the Spirit at the moment of your faith, when you were born again, and he comes to live with you permanently at that moment. Paul says in Romans 5, chapter 1, Having been justified by our faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. Notice Paul says that it's for all who have been justified by faith. All. You've been introduced into His grace. You have tribulations, yes, but they're there to build spiritual character. And out of that comes an unshakable hope that you know you are His. And Paul says that hope will never disappoint you because you already have God living inside you. You already have the Holy Spirit. That deposit of the Holy Spirit into every believer is proof that God will keep His promises to you. It's it's like earnest money. You You put earnest money down on a house contract as proof to the seller that you will go through with the deal. You won't back out on the deal. That's the whole point of earnest money. God put earnest money down on every one of us. Only he didn't just use money. He put himself in us. That is proof that the buyer intends to follow through on the purchase. The Spirit is evidence he intends to keep his promises to us. And we will one day be resurrected and live in glory with Christ as he has promised. That is undeniable. He wants you to be sure, so he gave you his Spirit as evidence. So when Jesus tells us to ask and we will receive the Holy Spirit in Luke, he doesn't mean you will have him for the first time or that you will have some percent increase of him 
or you'll have more of something of him. You've got all of that. What he means is you will receive from the Spirit the wisdom and the power to deal with the sin struggle that you are currently facing in that moment. That he will come to your aid. That he will come to the rescue in that moment. That he will grant you some specific understanding, something you need to know in order to fall, not to fall for that temptation that you're facing. Or as Peter says in 2 Peter 2.9, that he will give you a way to escape from temptation, a way out. There's, there's the temptation today to just buy things easily because of Amazon Prime and one click and, you know, oh my goodness, how easy is it anymore to just buy things? And what's funny is when I know I shouldn't be buying something, sometimes it won't work. Internet's down. Phone's not working. I don't know what's wrong with this thing. I'll just restart. I'll keep working at this till I get it, you know? What's God doing in that moment? Steve, you don't want that thing. You don't need that thing. I'm going to turn your internet off for 30 seconds, and we're going to see if that's enough time for you to get the message. Now, if I persist, I, you know, eventually I'll find the internet again. But the point is, he's given me an escape. He's given me a way out. He's given me the opportunity, right? And if you ask him for that, he'll give it to you every time. That's how he works in our life. He knows how to get us out of those predicaments. If you ask him, he will make sure that you have the strength and the knowledge to do it. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, that he will just wipe the slate clean and make sure that you cannot sin. The best example of what he's saying is found actually in Genesis when you look at the story of Lot. You know, Lot was in a bad place in the city of Sodom. He shouldn't have been there. He made a bad choice to go in. Once he got in, he got trapped by the culture. And the Bible says he was a righteous man, but he was tormented by the the world that he put himself in. When it came time for that world to be judged, God knew who his were, who the believers were, Lot and members of his family. So he went in to rescue Lot. Do you remember how he rescued him, though, with angels? He dragged him out. All right, but where did he leave him? He left him in harm's way. He left him outside the city, but still in harm's way of what was coming, and so he had to flee to the mountains to escape it. Remember that? So he gave him reason to flee because he separated Lot from the things in the city that were holding him back. Once he got outside the city, now the city is not a temptation as much. It wasn't in view. He could see it with a proper perspective. Now he could respond to God's call to escape when before he couldn't. But he still had to respond. I think that's how God grows all of us. He will move our circumstances just enough that what we couldn't do on our own, we're now able to do. But you know, you still got to make the right choice when it comes to your own sin. You still got to do something. That's what he's saying. Paul says this to the church in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. But notice what he said. He said, he won't tempt you beyond, won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And if you want to finish that sentence, what you are able to resist. He'll make sure you're in a position by his grace to move yourself in the right direction. But he's still calling for us to obey. Paul says, that's how God works with his church. Could it be this straightforward? Could it really be this easy, in a sense, this simple? Could it be that our struggles with sin have persisted as long as they have merely because we haven't asked the Father to help us deal with them? That we've just struggled in silence or because we liked it? I mean, ask yourself, when you're feeling pulled into the thing or things that you know you shouldn't do or say or think or whatever... 
How often have you stopped yourself in the moment and prayed for the strength to escape the pull? You might say, well, that's the hard part. (laughs) You know, stopping yourself long enough to pray. Okay, that's a bit of a struggle. You're going to have to learn that piece, but that's it. Do that and watch what follows. I had a guy one time who was a missionary in Mexico, and he had a great story he used to tell of how he dealt with lust as a man. He says, you know, if I see a woman walking by and she catches my eye and I find myself slipping into a moment of lust over her, I immediately start to pray for her. And he says, what's interesting is I found that it's literally impossible to lust and pray for someone at the same time. (laughs) Isn't that great? Now, how did he come to do that? Well, it's just a self-discipline issue at that point, right? He makes a decision and he starts working the problem. But what he's also doing is he's saying to God, work with me in this problem. It moved his mind off of doing that. In fact, he said, I prayed for a lot more women than I ever used to. (laughs) I guess if that's how you're going to get there, that's okay. But could it be that we veered into our sin so often and so easily just because we never stopped to ask the Lord to help us get through that moment? I think that's what the problem comes down to. Availing ourselves of the grace of God. In this area of our life. Jesus said, don't judge others. Deal with your own sin problem. But you notice he didn't say, deal with it by yourself. What he says is, and by the way, if that worked, you could just deal with it on your own. You wouldn't need Jesus. You wouldn't need the Spirit. You wouldn't need the church. We wouldn't need the Bible. We'd all be perfect. Self-evidently, we're not. So the flesh is powerful and it does what it wants and it calls us to follow it instead of following the Spirit. We need the Lord. We need His grace. That's just the way this is supposed to work. And He's inclined to give us the good things we ask for. John fourteen twenty three, Jesus, speaking to His disciples, said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then the Spirit's in you right now. And I will tell you, friends, if you have sin in your life that is persistent, that has become a a significant stumbling block in your walk with Christ, I don't just mean the daily sins we all deal with. That's an issue too. But I'm asking specifically for you to think about the, the big thing in your life or big things in your life. If that's where you're still stuck right now, then take a word from Scripture tonight. Think carefully about how you're addressing that problem when it comes up. Have you been praying for the Father to move your heart in the right direction in those moments or to strengthen you in the face of those temptations when you face them? If you haven't, I think you just discovered why you're struggling. Now, I'm not saying you pray once and it's all solved. I don't think that's what he's saying either. Remember, these verbs were were conjugated in the present tense. It's a continual continual depending on the Father in those moments for strength. But the point is, He'll give it to you every time. You'll never run out. We're all stuck on that at times. I hope you'll take encouragement from what we're learning here tonight. That is, the Father has turned to us in Christ and said, stop judging one another and don't even tell the unbelieving world how to behave. Work on your own problem. He followed that by saying, and let me help you with that problem. Just ask and I will give it to you. I will give the Holy Spirit strength to you to deal with these issues. Think about that this week. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Father, on behalf of those who are gathered here tonight, I pray, Father, that you would forgive all of us for our unwillingness and our oversight in not asking for you to support our struggle against sin. How many bad things have we engaged in in our life because we didn't do that? Because we fought this on our own or indulged ourselves without concern. But whatever the case, Father, we 
We see now we could have chosen a different path. We could have put ourselves on our knees and asked you to take us away from those moments, and you said you would do it. And so, Father, we look forward now to a walk with you that is different. A walk, Father, that works in your power, not our own, and seeks to please you by listening to the Spirit in us rather than ignoring it. Father, help us to to take what we've learned tonight, put it into action. I pray, Father, each one of us would be doers of this word because how powerful is a church, Father, that is walking in the Spirit? How amazing would it be to model righteousness in the way that's possible by following? But, Father, for any who are struggling tonight, for any who are still wrestling with something, something that may have given them little hope, may have robbed them of their joy, may have even caused them to question whether they are truly yours. Reassure them, Father, by the Spirit that is living in them. They are no less righteous. They are no less yours. They are no less destined for glory. They are no less beloved. They are no less a a member of the body of Christ. They are no less qualified to serve you. They are no less able to witness for you. They are no less anything, Father, for they are everything only in Christ anyway. We are all, Father, only something in Christ. But also, Father, encourage their hearts tonight in what they've learned so that they might see a way out. They might pray, seeking what you can offer them in the Spirit to overcome the sin that they know so well. We pray that for all of us, Father, and we ask, O Lord, that in the weeks that come we'll have testimonies from many of the work you've done in their life by the power of your word through your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.